Our gracious Heavenly Father, what a marvelous time for us to be alive. We are living in one of the most amazing epochs of human history uh, that has ever existed. And Father, we look on the nations of the world and we see them uniting together and joining together in lockstep as they impose ever more tyrannical rules on the people of this earth. Father, we know what's behind it. We don't need to think in terms of a conspiracy theory. We know that there is a grand conspiracy that was hatched by Satan and his angels before human history began. And Father, we know that that is working out exactly as you told us that it would in your word. And so as we open the scriptures, our prayer is that we can be delivered from the distraction, from the delusion, from the insanity, uh, and even the fear-mongering that we see on a moment-by-moment -moment daily basis coming across the airwaves and over the internet. And help us to just lay all of that aside and look into your word and realize once again that Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, is sitting at your right hand. And that he is reigning in power and authority over the events of human history. And he will bring history to the conclusion which you have foretold. And so, Father, as we look into your word, uplift our spirits, remove the dark cloud from above our heads, and uh, give us a valiant and uh, courageous spirit to face the times in which we live until that glorious day that our Lord Jesus Christ descends from heaven with a shout and we rise to meet him. Let all things therefore be done to his honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. The theme of our conference comes from Revelation 1.19, which is a threefold outline of the book of Revelation. Write the things that you have seen. That's chapter one, the vision of Jesus on the Isle of Patmos. The things which are, that refers to the church age as depicted in chapters two and three. And then the things which will take place after these things. And we'll be getting into that more in detail uh, it's going to, that, that phrase, after these things, will be repeated in Revelation 4.1, and we'll look at that in relationship to the rapture of the church. I just want to emphasize that God has a plan for human history. Human history is not a runaway train. However much men and angels may rebel against the plan of God, He remains in control, and He will ultimately accomplish his eternal purpose. So we read from Isaiah 41 and verse 4, Who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. And then in the words of uh, James, known unto God from eternity are all His works, as He made that statement in Acts 15 and verse 18. So God has an outline for history, and we're going to look at that outline, particularly from this point forward, but we will, of course, refer to the past. But it's important to remember, and if you just picture in your mind a timeline, and in the middle of that timeline, from the beginning of history to the end of history, from eternity past to eternity future, in the middle of that line, place the cross. 
because the cross is the central focus of God's plan for history. God's plan for history is a redemptive plan, and that is ultimately foremost in everything that he is doing. We know that ultimately righteousness and justice will prevail. We have many people who posit and suggest and uh, present the idea of this or that uh, characteristic of divine essence being the most important, but we should just stick with Scripture. Scripture makes it very clear that righteousness and justice is the foundation of God's throne. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God supplies. And when you mingle righteousness and justice with the love of God, where do you come to? You come to the cross. Righteousness is satisfied. Justice is meted out. Love is fulfilled. And eternal life is offered to all who are willing to receive it. So as we enter into our first study here in Matthew 24, we move to the Olivet Discourse. You'll remember that Jesus gave three primary messages or discourses uh, during the course of his life that are recorded for us in Scripture. And this, of course, begins in Matthew 5 through 7 with the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was directed to Israel and has a kingdom concept, a kingdom mindset, a kingdom focus. And then we come to Matthew 24 and 25, and we have the Olivet Discourse. And the Olivet Discourse has a tribulation focus. And then, of course, the last of the discourses in John chapters 13 through 17 is the Upper Room Discourse, and it has a church age focus. If we fail to make a distinction, and God's plan is a dispensational plan, we know that Scripture is revealed progressively. People didn't know as much in Genesis 10 as they do by the story at the end of Genesis, or into the time of Moses, or into the time of David, or up to the time of Malachi. And of course, you and I are the fortunate ones because we are the people who receive the completed canon of Scripture, the whole Word of God. Uh, it never existed before John put his uh, final period on the book of Revelation. And I might just mention, since it comes to my mind, Revelation ends with a prayer. And it is a prayer from the Spirit and the Bride. And the prayer of the Spirit and the Bride is, Even so come, Lord Jesus. And I often wonder if our Lord is waiting until enough of his people wake up and begin to pray that prayer, because we do know, and we'll see this later on, toward the end of the tribulation, Christ will not come until the people cry out for him to come. In fact, he uh, spoke of that in a prophetic sense in Matthew 23, after pronouncing a sevenfold curse on the nation of Israel. He said, you shall not see me henceforth until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And a lot of people get confused in Romans chapter 10 uh, as they move from Romans 10, 9 down to verse 13, believing with the heart, confessing with the mouth, and whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All of that can apply to us, but we need to be accurate in our interpretation. It is an, a Jewish context. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with the Jewish nation. And of course, it's looking forward to the time when the nation as a whole will repent and cry out and the Lord will come and deliver them. So here we are then in the Olivet Discourse and Jesus is asked some question by the disciples. 
Uh, I'll just go ahead and read those questions. In verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, as if he'd never seen them before, right? In verse 2, he said to them, do you not see all these things? <laughs> it's interesting, they want to show them to him, but he's asking them if they see them. They, they see, but they're not seeing. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those three questions relate to the dispensation of Israel. Very important that we understand this, and maybe tomorrow I'll get the whiteboard up here and do a little illustrating for you with my tremendous artistic capabilities. You're allowed to laugh at that. Uh, and we'll be able to maybe get uh, a visual picture of that. But what I want to do is I want to move to verses uh, 4 through 8, because this is where he introduces the first part of history of that 107 plus thousand years, and that is where you and I live. Verses 4 through 8 is where we are today. And here's what he has to say. See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. Sound familiar? See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. All these things are merely the beginning of sorrows. I just want to point out a couple of things from this passage. First of all, there are Two dangers that we are warned of. It's very important that we get this. Those two dangers are deception by false teaching and fear and anxiety. Either one of those will destroy your fellowship with the Lord, your effectiveness as a believer in Jesus Christ, your effectiveness as a witness, because the one will lead you into false teaching of which there is much today, uh, the other, of course, is going to lead you uh, into uh, fear is, as opposed to faith. And unless faith is conquering fear, uh, we are not going to be very effective. A fearful witness, uh, a fearful Christian is not a very effective Christian. Uh, fear conquers faith. There's not room for both in the soul, and we need to drive out fear with faith. Birth pangs are preceding the end of the age. I want you to notice that he says the end is not yet. And it's very important that we uh, take note of details when we look at Scripture. They ask what will be the end of the age. So stop and think for a moment, what age were they living in? They were not living in the church age. The church age doesn't begin until Acts chapter 2. So they're living in the age of Israel. I personally like to break the Old Testament down in very simple terms. The age of the Gentiles from the beginning of Genesis to Genesis 11 with the call of Abraham and then the age of the Jews. And some people break it up into the age of the Jews and then the Mosaic age or the age of the law. Uh, however you want to do that. 
If you see history as being divided by the cross and dispensationalism is under attack today, uh, it's not surprising because everything that's true is under attack today, is it not? The rapture. The teaching of the rapture is under attack. Churches that once held the position have turned away from it. Uh, my personal feeling is they're intimidated because it hasn't happened yet and they're uh, afraid to take a bold stand on something they fear may not prove true. And so there you have it. Uh, all truth is under attack in the time in which you and I are living. So Jesus warns, first of all, of the first danger. That is, make sure you're not deceived. I would highly recommend, have I mentioned a couple of books by J.B. Hickson called The Spirit of Antichrist? By the way, could I make an announcement? He's already here. Say, how do you know? I don't. I'm surmising. I believe the only way that the whole world could be pulled together the way it has is the fact that he's already on the scene. You know, the Jewish rabbis, there, there are two as Hickson says, the, how does he say it? The evil of two lessers. The evil of two lessers is Antichrist and the false prophet. And the false prophet who will arise in Israel is going to point to the Antichrist who is going to rise among the nations. And the Jewish rabbis, top Jewish rabbis, uh, are openly saying that their Messiah, which would be the false prophet, is already there and in communication with them. Uh, my belief is that Antichrist and the false prophet are already on the scene. They're simply waiting behind the curtain. They're waiting behind the veil. Uh, the restrainer is, of course, holding back their agenda. Uh, they cannot come on the scene until certain things have happened, and those things can't happen until you and I are out of here. So, again, pray the prayer at the end of Revelation. I pray for the rapture of the church every day. I pray for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his bride every day. And I would urge you to join me and urge you to tell every believer you know, join together with us and let's pray the prayer that the Bible ends with. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Because if he doesn't come, it's going to be a rough ride for all of us. One of the things I've tried to do in the notes, and even many of the churches that identify as doctrinal churches have gotten away from this, We've gotten away from presenting categorical <coughs> doctrinal information. If you've never heard that term, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is if you picture in your mind a jigsaw puzzle, and you have on the cover of the box the picture that you are going to try to uh, make by putting all the pieces together, and you start and you examine one piece very carefully, and then you find that it fits with another piece, and you put those together, and as soon as you get 10, 20, 30 of them together, you're at least in a start. The accumulation or the interlocking of those various pieces is like categorical teaching. Apart from categorical teaching, and you'll notice at the bottom of page four, you have the doctrine of dispensations. Again, please be gracious with me. Uh, I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I lost about somewhere between three and 5,000 pages of doctrinal notes when I left Australia. I had to start over again. So I'd love to be able to go to my file like I used to. Uh, I was asked to teach recently at the church in Prescott Valley, and one of the uh, fellow pastors came up and said, boy, you guys are lucky. With all the time you've spent in the ministry, you can just go to your file and, and pull out an old message. 
And you may not believe this, but I have never done that in 50 years. If I taught through the entire book of Ephesians and I had a stack of notes that thick, the next time I taught through Ephesians, I started as if I knew nothing. And I did everything from scratch from the beginning because that was the only way to guard me against just falling back on something I said before without checking it out. So I try to check everything out again and again. But the point is, we need to put information together so that people, instead of seeing little bits and pieces of the Bible here and there, are able to see how things that relate to the same topic fit together. And I'm not going to go through all of these notes for you. I think I have 13 doctrines uh, in the notes that are here. Um, but it's important to understand dispensations is simply the unfolding of the plan of God for human history. And as I indicated earlier, centered around the cross, uh, you and I live in the greatest age. We live in the age of the mystery. Uh, point three under that doctrine uh, shows that Paul refers to this age as the dispensation of the fullness of times. In other words, this is the greatest time to be alive. There is no other time in human history like the time in which you and I live, and we'll see reasons for that as we go along. Uh, he also calls it in Ephesians 3, 2, the dispensation of the grace of God. And of course, dispensation refers to the rule of a household. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us Moses had a household. He was a servant in it. Jesus has a different household, and he is the son over that household, and we are his household. And each household has different uh, rules and uh, regulations for its management, and we live in the most amazing age uh, in human history. I do want to point at the bottom of page three, just to remind us that because we live in this amazing age, we have provisions that have never been made before and will never be made again. We are not the same as the believer of the Old Testament. We are not the same as a believer in the tribulation period. We are not the same as a believer in the kingdom age. This is the ultimate. And the great tragedy is that with all the provisions that have been made for us, how few of the believers across this country are taking advantage of the absolutely amazing provisions that have been made. So I just want to quickly look at that. The church age is unique among all the dispensations of history. That is point one. Point two, spiritual union with Jesus Christ termed by Paul as the little phrase, in Christ declares, speaks of the result of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that places us into eternal union. The song that we just sang, He will hold me fast. That is eternal security. You are not secure because you persevere to the end. You're not secure because you're a good little boy or a little girl, or you do better than the Christian next door. You're secure because Christ is faithful, period. That is your only security, your only stability, and your only hope. And of course, Paul points that out in 1 Corinthians 1.30 and 12.13. But I want to add a few things to these notes, starting with point two there at the top of page four, because every single one of these points was anticipated by Jesus in the upper room. Here again is another failure. People don't realize that in the upper room, the Lord Jesus Christ laid the foundation for everything we have in the rest of the New Testament. You cannot find a single doctrine in the New Testament that is not anticipated in the upper room in John 13 to 17, because as I said, 
Matthew 5 through 7, that's kingdom information. Matthew 24 and 25, primarily dealing with the tribulation period, although as we've seen in verses 4 through 8, it does pick up prior to the tribulation. And then, of course, in the upper room, John 13 to 17, we have the church age. By the way, if you will, you still have your Bible open to Matthew 24? Can I just point something out to you? Verse 8, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. He said earlier, the end is not yet. That is the end of the age of Israel. Now notice verse 9, then. Key words are important. Do you know what the key word in the Olivet Discourse is? It's a word that is easily overlooked. Then. It's a time word. You read through Matthew 24 and 25, you'll find it over and over and over again. Then, when? When the birth pangs are complete, then they will deliver you to tribulation. That's the beginning of the tribulation period, which we'll get to tomorrow. And we'll be back here uh, in due time. But if you will, follow me along these points on the unique provisions of the church age, and I'm going to give you what is not in your notes. So sharpen your pencil, get out your notebook. Point two, our spiritual union with Jesus Christ is anticipated by the Lord Jesus in John 17, 22 and 23. Never before in all of history could it be said of a believer that God was in them and they were in God. Or that Christ was in them and they were in Christ. That never happened until the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And of course, as a result of that, your third point is that due to this union, every believer is indwelt by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice right there from the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 18, John 14, 20, and John 15, 4. The personal indwelling of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our fourth point is that every believer is also indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who also represents the Father. Uh, if you look at Romans 8, 9 through 11, you have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father, and the Spirit of Christ. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned as indwelling us. And then, of course, it comes up again in John 14, 16, uh, and John 14, 26, and John 15, 26. So again, referring us back to the upper room discourse. Fifth, during the church age, every believer is also a royal priest, a status that has never existed before with the exception of one person in recorded biblical history. You all know who he is. A guy by the name of Melchizedek. A very mysterious figure. And a lot, tragedy is a lot of people spend all their time trying to figure out who Melchizedek is and they don't know who they are. You are a believer priest. You have a higher status than Melchizedek. As a matter of fact, your priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, and you are in the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places right now, while you're here sitting, while we're gathered together, while we're looking in our Bibles, in the mind of God, in the eyes of God, each and every one of us, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. That's why death for the believer is going home. We're just going where we already are in reality. 
We're leaving the land of shadows for the land of reality. We're leaving the veil of tears and the valley of suffering in order to go to the place where the light always shines because the light of the kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have nothing to fear in death. In fact, rightly understood, we have everything to anticipate and be excited about going through that door that will take us home. You might uh, just add there with uh, point five, every believer is a royal priest and every believer is an ambassador. You have 1 Peter 2, 5 to 9, Revelation 5, 10, and 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Add these verses from the upper room. John 15, verse 16. John 15, 26 and 27. John 16, 7 through 11. Every one of these unique privileges provided for us is anticipated by the Lord Jesus Christ. The sixth point is that one of our greatest privileges never before possessed is that we have the completed canon of Scripture, the full and the final Word of God. Never happened before John put his finishing touches on the book of Revelation. But this was anticipated by Jesus. You might want to jot down John 14, verse 26, and John 15, 26, and 27. He told us that when the Spirit of truth came, remember that He was speaking to the apostles, He will bring to your memory everything that I have spoken to you, and He will tell you things that I could not tell you at this time. I have many things to say to you. You're not able to bear them. When the Holy Spirit comes, uh, he's going to pick up where I left off as I'm paraphrasing the idea that they would be given the information they needed to record Scripture. And I don't know about you, but I thank God for the Apostle Paul. Because you know what? With everything he poured out to the disciples in the upper room, they still didn't get it. After three years with him, they didn't get it. As a matter of fact, they didn't get it until finally the Apostle Paul came along and had to instruct many of them and get them rightly oriented. If it were not for the Apostle Paul, you and I would be serving the Old Covenant. Read Galatians chapter 2. Read how Paul had to brace uh, Peter in front of the entire church and rebuke him for forsaking the new wine and going back to the old wine. He turned away from grace and went back to the law. And Paul had to rebuke him, and it took, you know, Peter didn't learn overnight. I mean, I love Peter because uh, what an encouragement it is to me to realize that someone can be a blockhead, an idiot, stumbling and staggering through life, and somehow God still makes use of them. I find great comfort in that. But without the Apostle Paul, where would we be? Even reading, we just did a conference in uh, Sherman, Texas on 2 Peter, even when Peter wrote 2 Peter chapter 3, he still hadn't figured it out. I'm not saying 2 Peter chapter 3 is not inspired, but I'm saying there are volumes of information that could have been put in there uh, that no doubt the Apostle Paul would have probably added in. Point seven, as a result of all of the above, every believer is able to be filled by the Holy Spirit and enabled for service to God moment by moment. You know, there were a few select chosen people in the Old Testament that were filled by the Holy Spirit. And it was never permanent. It was always temporary. Samson, the ultimate example. He did not know that the Spirit had departed from him. 
David prayed after his sin with Bathsheba, take not your spirit from me. You and I never have to pray that prayer because it'll never happen. When Jesus said, the spirit has been with you, he will be in you forever. Once the spirit of God takes up residence in the soul of a believer, that is permanent and eternal and you don't have to worry. You can lose your fellowship with God. You can refuse to listen to the spirit. You can fail to be guided by the spirit, but he is still going to be present. And by the way, in case it's ever bothered you in 1 John chapter 3, when John tells us that it is impossible for that which is born of God to sin, and you say, well, I can't quite figure that one out because I still sin. He's not talking about you as the weak, sinful believer that you are. He is talking about that new creature created you, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. When you trust Jesus Christ, there is a part of you that is incapable of sin. And guess what? That's why the Holy Spirit can stay in you. He has a refuge. He has a sanctuary. He has a holy of holies that is inviolable and cannot be touched by any of our weakness, frailty, or failure, flaws, or anything else. That is the dwelling place of the new creature in which the Holy Spirit dwells. What a marvelous plan. Aren't you sorry that I only had five days and I couldn't really prepare to give you guys any information here? I don't know. The United States is in great spiritual peril, and I'm not going to go through this at the bottom of page four, but we are on the brink of the outpouring of the wrath of God like we have never, ever seen. In Leviticus chapter 26, Moses went through the five cycles of discipline that the nation of Israel would suffer, and each cycle was intensified because each cycle was intended to wake them up, get their attention, cause them to repent, turn them back. And again and again, the Lord said, if even after this, you will not return to me, then it's going to get worse. And so you have these five cycles of increasing judgment on a nation and <clears throat> You can argue whether or not they apply to the United States, but the principle certainly holds true. We're at the end of it. We're at the end of it. We glorify. You know, in 1956, on Resurrection Weekend, I don't even like to use the term Easter. On Resurrection Weekend, do you know what happened in New York City? The night skyline of New York City was lit up with the tallest buildings, and all of them had turned the lights on so the cross of Christ was shining across New York City. Do you know what the nation celebrated this last Resurrection Sunday? Transgenderism. That was our celebration. And we've come to a point where to even speak publicly the name of Christ, to even take a biblical position publicly, uh, is now uh, not only squelched, uh, but it's actually seen as hate speech. All that is being done in this country and around the world has an ultimate target and they don't want to identify it yet because they are not quite ready to put everything in place and it's called the persecution of the Christian church. And it's all aimed at you and I. And it's coming down the tracks and we need to be prepared for it. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks through his word and says, do not be deceived. 
do not be afraid. You know, every time we find ourselves becoming anxious, becoming nervous, uh, we're living in an anxious age. By the way, suicide is the number two killer in the United States of America today. I heard that fentanyl, I believe is now, if I have the numbers correct, I think fentanyl is now killing something like 300,000 Americans a year. 300,000 Americans a year. That's of course because our borders were open and the uh, drugs are flowing through and the cartels are making money like they've never made. We've made the cartels richer in two years than they were from their very beginning. And when you think of that number of 300,000 lives lost in a nation, do you realize that we fought in Vietnam for 10 years and we thought it was horrendous because we lost 50,000 men in 10 years? We're losing five times that number a year just to fentanyl alone. This country is in dire straits and the wrath of God is building and one day the floodgates are going to open and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on this nation. And there's only one thing stopping it, and that's you and I and fellow believers across this land who are interceding on behalf of our nation. You know, the chief responsibility of a priest is to intercede on behalf of the people. If all we pray for is ourself, if all we pray for is our family, if we don't widen the scope and increase the breadth of the love of Christ in our heart for this nation and the people scattered across it, the people who are being deceived, people who are being misled, people who are being led to eternal destruction, we need to be interceding for them. We need to be praying that God the Holy Spirit will work in a mighty way to open the eyes and open the hearts and unlock the souls of people across this country. Because we are not living in normal times. We are living in a time when the demons have taken control. The Luciferians are in control of the world. And they're running the governments and the governments are doing their bidding and the devilishness of their designs comes through every day. And it only gets worse. You think it's bad now? Could you have imagined two or three years ago that we would be where we are today? And we used to say 20 years ago, I never would have expected this. And then it was 10 years ago, I never would have expected this. And then five years ago, and now it's coming down to like six months ago. I could not believe the things that are going on right now. And people who are standing up, people who are refusing to bow the knee, people who are speaking the truth from the Word of God, you know what's happening to them? All across the country, they're being arrested. You can be arrested for speaking the truth. Speaking the truth today is a hate crime. Evil is protected. Evil is pampered. Good is under the gun and under attack. And if you stand for the truth, uh, you very, very well could come under prosecution and end up suffering. Well, we're back where we started, are we not? People often say to me, well, I don't believe the rapture because I don't think the church ought to get a get out of trouble card free. And I said, when did the church ever have freedom from suffering? Go back to the early church. Look at the early martyrs. Look at the stories of the young men 
that would step forward and volunteer to be put to death in the place of another man who had a wife and a family when this young man was single and he would volunteer to be the one fed to the lions, tied to the stake, burned alive so that his brother could go free. What was it Jesus said in the upper room? And here's the real key, and we didn't hit this in the notes. Here is the power of the age, the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us. Why? Because we judge that if Christ died for all, it's because all were dead. And He died so that those who live, that's you and I, if you have Christ, you're alive, should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who loved them and gave Himself for them. Why? Because God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God by faith in Him. We appreciate far too little what we have. We appreciate far too little what it cost. And we appreciate far too little what it ought to be doing in our lives. We need to get on fire. We need to start doing whatever it takes to stir ourselves up. And as Paul said to Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you. And the word stir up is a word that means get the fire going. Stop being content with the little burning embers, with the little dying coals. Start putting fuel on the fire. And when we put fuel on the fire, and this is, this is our fuel, this is part of it. A big part of it is each other. You know, I often say to the folks that travel so far to come, you have no idea how much you minister to Nan and I. The fact that you would come, the fact that you would be here on a Friday night and take time out of your life and your busy schedule. It ministers to us. It encourages us so that we can take off on Monday morning and head into the mountains of Nagaland and the cities of Hyderabad. And uh, Janet's going to be there with us and, and Kim uh, is going to be there with us and we're going to reach some souls for Christ and bring some kids into the kingdom. But it's not easy We've got like 30-some hours of flying in order to get to a 12-hour drive through a rocky, rough, mountainous region to arrive after about three days of nonstop travel with a couple of little times we might get to lay down and sleep. And then I've got to stand up and speak to a group of 100 students graduating from a theological college sitting on the side of a mountain looking down on Burma. Why in the world would you do that? You're my encouragement to go do it. The fact that you're here, the fact that you love the Lord, the fact that you have a hunger for His Word is what drives us. And the fact that what you show here is a preview of what we'll see in the hearts and the souls and the lives of those precious people over there. The people of this world are precious beyond comprehension. Every single soul is precious beyond comprehension. If only we understood what it meant that the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ, not ours. The love of Christ who would have gone to the cross if you had been the only person that would believe He would have gone to the cross for you. If the whole world turned their back and one soul responded to the gospel message, he would have gone to the cross. He still paid it all. He paid the debt for every member of the human race. How great is the love of Christ? 
I have to tell you that I stand before you ashamed that after 50 years of studying, I've only scratched the surface on what it means, the love of Christ. But the only way I know to get a better grasp of it and a better understanding of it is to go out there where only the love of Christ can sustain you. It's the only way I know. And of course, when we go overseas, wherever we go, we always joke that when we go overseas, God shows up and we see him working in mighty and amazing ways. And then we come back to America and when we get to the border of America, he stays behind because we see so little of him in this country. We do see him here and uh, I'm very thankful that you're a part of that. And we're going to stop here because we're going to get into study two, our next session, the rapture and the Bema. So we'll look at that shortly. And uh, I'm going to close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your word. Once again, thank you for the precious souls that have showed up this evening to gather together with us to open your word and to be challenged. We know that we are living in the birth pangs. We know, Father, that there are wars and rumors of wars. There are earthquakes. There are famines. They're going to get greater. They're going to get more and more frequent. They're going to become more and more intense, just like birth pangs. But help us to always remember that birth pangs mean a birth. Those birth pangs are for the rebirth of the nation of Israel. But they also, to us, are an anticipation of the day when we will take on that new and glorious body as we rise into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So Father, challenge us, shake us out of apathy and indifference, and help us to realize that we are on this earth for a reason. We are not here to make a living. We are here to make a difference. And I pray that each one of us in our own sphere of influence, according to our own gift, according to your plan, will make that difference in this world. To the honor and the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.